Okay. Mic on? Is the mic on yet? Okay, very good. Well, thank you. I did promise that uh, we were going to begin again on time, and we're actually about a half a minute early. Um, but we'll end on time again as well. Uh, the previous talk, the fundamental purpose was in a way to see the state in a somewhat different light from the way that we're accustomed to seeing it presented, and certainly the way that the leaders of states like to present themselves as the source of order in the world, or as it was memorably put by our current president, the mentality that you didn't do that, somehow government was responsible for the things that we normally think we've accomplished in our lives. But to accustom us to also seeing the world in a different way and understanding that there are many social ordering mechanisms that just are not part of the state, and sometimes it may even run contrary to the state's uh, intentions and purposes. All sorts of things such as credit bureaus, uh, social interaction, reputational mechanisms, and so on, that encourage people to behave properly, to behave in a lawful and respectful manner, but that don't rest on the blunt instruments of state power, namely physical violence, incarceration, putting people in a cage, and so on. There are lots of other ways to induce people to uh, behave properly that are voluntary. Uh, there's temperance societies, not only prohibition, for example, to encourage people to behave temperately. What I want to talk about now is uh, looking at this same question from a somewhat different perspective and looking at the growth of institutions that can tame power, that can take raw power and somehow subject it to rules of law. So looking at freedom in this historical sense as the growth of the institutions of constitutionalism and the rule of law. But let me start with a little bit of background about history. I mentioned earlier that I'm very skeptical of big philosophies of history that see us as moving inevitably in one direction or another. But I think history has very, very important functions, including a moral function. And one of my favorite historians, Tacitus, uh, the great Roman historian, uh, thought that history had a moral function as well. Not to relate at length every motion, but only such as were conspicuous for excellence or notorious for infamy. This I regard as history's highest function, to let no worthy action be uncommemorated, and to hold out the reprobation of posterity as a terror to evil words and deeds. There's a certain sense in which remembering the wickedness of tyrants is the punishment that history can impose on them, that we should remember bad people for the bad things they did, and also those people who stood up for justice and for freedom and honor their memories, that that is a very important moral function uh, to history. It's not just figuring out what happened, but also drawing the moral lessons, remembering those who are worthy of being remembered. A little bit of background, again, uh, I'm suspicious of these grand philosophies of history, and I'll make some just general remarks about the conditions that I think are propitious or favorable to the emergence of liberty. And the first is some theory of the higher law, namely that law isn't just whatever I can get away with or whatever I can impose on other people. It's not an expression of human will. But it's very common in most of the statist or absolutist notions of power that power, excuse me, that law is an expression of will, 
But instead, in the classical liberal tradition is some sense that there's a higher law. And there are two classical formulations of this. Uh, we can talk about them using two cities as shorthand. Jerusalem, namely revealed religion, the idea that there is some higher power that isn't an expression simply of human power or will. And that's articulated in a number of documents if you think about from the Judaic tradition and then as that is then uh, received by Christianity, by Islam and other religions, the notion that there's some higher path, that even the people of Israel can be judged by some higher standing, uh, some higher power and found wanting. If you think about the uh, various books of the Bible, one of the famous stories is the story of Moses. And if we think about this in the context, uh, not merely as a, uh, as a theological account, but think of it in the context of a drama, he's led the people out of their slavery in Egypt, he goes up to the mountain to have some kind of interaction with God that I think surpasses normal human understanding. He has some kind of, of receipt of a message from God. He's up there for some time, and meanwhile, down below, the people are restless. They say, where's this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt? What's become of him? And they go to Aaron, and they say, make us gods. And so he says to the people, gather your gold, your jewelry. They melt it. They make of it a golden calf. And then they dance before it, and they worship it. They say, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And meanwhile, back at the mountain, Moses and God are having some kind of, of exchange. And God says, behold, this is a stiff-necked people. And he says, what is going on there? He says, now let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I shall completely destroy them. But of you, I shall make a great nation. This is a terrible thing to think that this golden thing is God. It's just a piece of gold. Or as we put it in theological terms, God is transcendent to his own creation. God is not just another thing like a golden <clears throat> statue. What makes this a, a unique story, or certainly highly unusual, maybe in a sense a distinctively Jewish story, is something a little surprising, which is Moses argues with God, which is not the immediate thing that might perhaps come to your mind, is to have an argument with God. He argues with him, but somehow, and it says the Lord repented of the evil he thought to do to his people. So, okay, not, not this time. But again, if we think about it in dramatic terms, a very powerful message has been put there, that God is not just a part of the world, this golden statue. And this has a really profound significance for politics, because what is it that so many rulers had claimed for themselves? They are gods. And in this tradition, that's possibly one of the most horrible things a person could actually say, to stand up and say, I am a god. There is one God that rules us, and you are just another human being and subject to that higher law. So there are many different formulations and different religious traditions of that idea of the higher law. Then Athens, which is what we associate with philosophy, with the love of wisdom, with the systematic 
investigation of the world uh, to begin to try to look for regularities in behavior, how animals walk, how this, the heavenly bodies move, what is the regularity involved in that. And science begins and people begin to say, is there a pattern there that we can begin to understand? So if you think about astronomy, for example, in Greek, the sotsein tough phenomena, to rationalize the appearances, is the goal of astronomy, to show that there's some regularity. The planets, which comes planetes, it means the wanderers. Those are the heavenly bodies that seem to just zigzag around the sky. How is that possible? And the astronomers tried to come up with models that will account for that. And Ptolemy, all the epicycles and epicycles and epicycles. And then Copernicus says, well, we can get the same appearances by displacing the Earth from the center and putting the sun at the center. We can get those irregular motions. So we look for regularity in the world and use the mind to comprehend it, natural philosophy, but also in moral and political philosophy as well, to look at how the world works. And this tradition comes down to us as the tradition of natural law. Now there's very important confusion that needs to be cleared up at this point. Quite often, for a variety of reasons, when you mention natural law, people think you're talking about religion. It's not. That's supernatural law. Natural law is about the law of nature. So I, for, it's a puzzle why people associate natural law with religion. It really should not be understood that way. It may be compatible with religion. St. Thomas Aquinas and many important figures in the church thought that, that natural law and the truths of religion were one, that they were compatible. But natural law was not discovered by means of faith as such. It can be known by reason. Aristotle talked about, for example, the nature of the human being, that the human being was the creature who talks, the rational animal as it's translated into Latin and then into English. <clears throat> and there are accidental features of the human being that are accidental. Whether one is pale or dark, for example, is accidental. That they're not essential characteristics of a human being. And as he makes it a very pithy statement for his Greek readers, uh, he talks about the Persians. And if you know, in the Greek worldview, there are two kinds of creatures who look like us, featherless bipeds, if you will. There are Greeks and barbarians. Those are the non-Greeks, are the barbarians. They're barbarians because they can't talk. If you go up to one of them and you want to have a conversation, can you direct me to the amphitheater or something like that, they just say bar, 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 bar. <laughs> they, they can't talk. And so they're called barbaroi, the people who just say bar, 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 when you try to talk to them. That's not uncommon, by the way. Lots and lots of languages have similar uh, descriptions. If, you, if you're in Austria and you want to say someone was speaking nonsense and rubbish, so er hat nur böhmisch gesprochen, he was speaking Czech. Because to a, an Austrian, Czech sounds like gibberish. They can't understand it, so they're just speaking Czech. And by the way, history does have some ironies. In modern American English, if you say something makes no sense to you, you say it's all Greek to me. So there's a certain kind of uh, cunning of reason involved there. But he points out that fire does not burn one way in Persia 
and another way in Greece. Fire is fire, and we can investigate the nature of fire. There's not Persian fire and Greek fire. So there's some ability of the human mind to understand how the world works, and that applies also to human order as such. So the most highly developed branch of the natural law, which we have today, is called economics. Here are a couple principles that we, we uh, feel very confident in asserting. If you print a lot of money, prices will go up. If you impose price controls, you will get shortages. Those are cause and effect statements about the world that are grounded in science. They're not just opinions. If you abolish private property and land and abolish markets for agricultural goods, people will eat each other. We know that. This happened in the Soviet Union, during the collectivization in Ukraine, and it happened in China during the so-called Great Leap Forward. About 45 million people die or are killed during this short period of time, one of the most horrific uh, crimes in all of human history. That's what happens when you abolish private property and land and abolish markets and food. People will eat each other. Now, again, not merely an opinion. Now, there are people, however, who dispute that, polylogists, and there are more of them than you might think, distinguished philosophers and writers who argue, no, 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 there's one rule for this group, but that doesn't apply to other groups. So let's think of some of those in history who have argued this. Marxists are fundamentally polylogists. There's a bourgeois logic and a proletarian logic, right? different logics for different periods of human history and different classes. This is one of the reasons why I never, ever trust communists. And that might seem trite. There aren't that many in the United States. But in some countries, like Nepal, there are. They happen to be majority of the parliament. I never trust them. Why? They don't believe in truth. That fundamental idea is absent. There's the truth that is useful to them, and that's it. So I tell my friends in Nepal and elsewhere, do not trust these people. If they get power, if you trust them, with that power, they will turn on you, and they will kill you at some point. So you, the reason is, at a deep level, they don't even believe in the idea of truth. The National Socialists were polylogists. There was Jewish logic and Aryan logic. So presumably, don't worry about that Einstein guy. He's doing some Jewish physics. Don't worry about it. We're going to be doing Aryan physics over here. Right? Different logics, if you will, for different races or classes and so on. And we even hear echoes of this in some parts of American academia. Extreme forms of gender studies, for example, that also argue something similar for women's logic and men's logic. Not saying that there are natural some differences between men and women, that's fairly obvious, but that at some deep level there are logical differences uh, between the genders. Uh, I don't buy that. I think that there is uh, one logic for uh, the universe, if you will, and, um, and not one for each one for different gender, race, class, nation, language, and so on and so forth. <clears throat> so if we see that law can be uh, either religiously grounded or understood by a human reason, and that it's not just a matter of will or desire or fantasy as to how the world works. <coughs> Ultimately, we can bump up against 
reality. And then related to that, think about human law, an appreciation that it can be discovered as well as made. And that's very significant, that law is discovered. The legal, uh, the lawmaking process is about discovering the law, not merely inventing and imposing it. Those who believe that law can be, that is exclusively imposed, typically follow um, John Austin and his positivist theory, law is posited, it's handed down, and the definition of a law is a command of a superior with a power to enforce obedience. That's what law is. That's a typical definition you would get in many philosophy of law courses. Well, it follows from that that the one who makes the law, the one who gives the commands, isn't subject to it. They can change the commands when they want to. That's a legal theory compatible with absolutism, or the idea of the sovereign state, the state that is above the law. But the classical liberal tradition sees the state itself as something that must be brought under the law, must be controlled by the law. Everyone should be subject to the law. So if law can be discovered, not merely imposed, it would also be binding on the discoverer. So take a simple example. Uh, Sir Isaac Newton discovers a law, a, a, a predictable pattern uh, in the physical world that two objects are attracted with a force inversely proportional to the square of the distances between them, which is the force law that will suffice to generate the elliptical orbits that have been described by uh, previous astronomers. It doesn't follow from that that he's exempt from it. He could float above the Earth. He's not attracted to other bodies. A different force law would describe a really interesting eccentric orbit, orbit just for him, if we were to shoot him into space, and so on. The same law, if you will, applies to him. Just the fact you discovered it doesn't somehow exempt you from it. And similarly, if we see law as something that is discovered, then the law institutions themselves that discover it or enforce it are subject to it. A very important conceptual difference. So the definition of law given by Lon Fuller is one that I think is both more consistent with the liberal tradition and our commitment, the classical liberal tradition, our commitment to individual freedom, and the rule of law, personal dignity, and so on. But also it captures the experience of law as we see it in the world. Law is the enterprise of subjecting human conduct to the governance of rules. Now that means that there are all kinds of laws also that have very little or nothing to do with the state. Laws that govern how neighbors treat one another, all kinds of expectations that people create amongst themselves could and should be described as law. Law is not the exclusive preserve of the state. There are a multitude of different bodies and institutions that generate law. eBay has its own legal system, for instance, that you deal with to adjudicate disputes. So if you go on eBay and you buy something or sell something, there's a procedure to adjudicate that. If you have a disagreement on the quality of the merchandise, the price that was paid, uh, credit card companies uh, have institutions that generate all kinds of mechanisms for adjudicating dispute and, if you will, generating law. Contracts, when people make contracts, they go and negotiate sometimes very complicated instruments they're not just copying a template from the state, they're making the law. 
in the process of doing that. They are discovering and generating the law, and they are also subject to it. They're not somehow uh, above it. So those are two conditions that I think are propitious. If these are somehow present in the culture, you're more likely to get a political system of liberty. Now, I've stressed a great deal law, but the relationship between law and freedom is also very significant. And I think that this notion of the rule of law is at the heart of the libertarian understanding of what it means to be a free person in a free society. Uh, John Locke put it uh, so elegantly in the Second Treatise, the end of law is not to abolish or to restrain, but to preserve and enlarge freedom. Where there is no law, there is no freedom. And he focuses on being free means not to be subject to the arbitrary will of another, but freely follow his own. So to be subject to the law, the same law to which everyone else is subject, is part of being a free person. As opposed to those other traditions calling themselves freedom, we could identify them with Jean-Jacques Rousseau, for example, which sees freedom as somehow just a condition of personal spontaneity, doing anything you want, sometimes even things that may shock people that may be harmful to other people. That's being free. It's just doing whatever you want to do. But that's not the experience of freedom. A free person in a free society is also respectful of other people, doesn't take other people's things, doesn't hit other people, doesn't defraud them, lie to them, and cheat them. That's part of a free society, is all of us being subject to the same set of restraints. And being subject to equal restraints is how we can enjoy our equal freedom. Freedom is not lack of restraints. The ability to burn down anyone's house anytime you want is not what it means to be a free person. Now this notion of property that Locke talks about, persons, actions, possessions, and his whole property, is very, very important. This is a term that has changed its meaning in English. Um, as he put it in, with regard to property, that you have a power to preserve his property, that is, his life, liberty, and estate. And here it's thinking a little bit about the way it's worth thinking about how English has changed since John Locke's time and even James Madison's. Locke or Madison would not have said, for a variety of reasons, this iPhone is my property. There were no iPhones. Um, but also, the phrase would have been nonsensical. It doesn't make any sense. Property is a right. How could I call the iPhone a right? Rather, they would say, I have a property in this iPhone. I have the property to call people on it, to set it down, to use it as a bookmark, to rent it to other people, to give it to someone else, to abandon it. Right. That is what it is to have a property in the phone. The phone is an object. The property is a right. Now, this is important for a variety of reasons. The first one that we can mention is it brings about greater clarity in discussion of law. So if I say, this land is my property, as we do in contemporary English, it's not clear what my rights are over it. I might have sold the subsurface mineral rights to another person. My neighbor may have an easement to be able to drive uh, her automobile across a portion of it to get to the road, or have access to the river. It could be that the neighborhood association has a right of veto. I couldn't paint my house shocking pink. 
because I have a binding covenant with the other members of my neighborhood association or to put some gigantic, uh, horrible, ugly statue in my front yard. Well, does it mean it isn't my property? What we would say is, I have a property in this land. I can live on it, I can do all these things, but some other people have other property in the land, like the right to determine the height of the building. One of the important features to understand the value of property in the Rocky Mountains is your view of the mountains <coughs> determines the value of your property. So how do people deal with that? You buy a piece of land, I buy the one next to you, and I put up a gigantic skyscraper you can't see the mountains anymore. Your property will fall in value. Well, people deal with this in advance. There are all kinds of restrictive covenants that say, I can't build such a tall building unless I get your permission. And you might say, well, you can have my permission, but it'll cost you $240,000. And if I say, well, I'll only give you two hundred, dollars that's the most I can afford, then we don't have a deal. But if it's worth 600000 to me, and you're going to, I can do it for 240000 we can make a deal. We can voluntarily sort this out. So that's the first point. The older language was more adequate for understanding property relations. The second deep philosophical question is that property extends to much more than things or objects. Locke focuses on my life, my freedom, and my estate. So for Locke, this is estate. Now we have shrunk down property just to be estate. But for Locke, it means life, liberty, and estate. So sometimes you run into Marxist or leftist critics who say, oh, all you favor is property. You favor property rights, not human rights. It's just somehow the property had rights, which is a puzzling idea. But the point is, favoring property means you do favor human rights. It's humans who have the rights to their life, their liberty, and indeed, their stuff, their estate. So that notion of property has a much wider significance and much uh, a greater moral richness. Now the question of how to attain liberty is fundamentally one about how to limit power. And there are different ways we can do this. The first that should come to mind, particularly for Americans steeped in American constitutional history, is the idea of offsetting powers, or as it's called in America, checks and balances. So let's start that story uh, in the ancient world with one of the most interesting poems of all time, the Epic of Gilgamesh. If you can see here, uh, this is an image of Gilgamesh. He's coming into town. He's riding on the backs of two griffins. And as you can see, what he has in each hand by the tail, it's a lion. This is a, a fairly blunt propaganda instrument to indicate he is a tough guy. He's a very powerful person. He can hold two lions each by the tail. So you just imagine that. I couldn't do that to my house cats. Imagine it with a... Uh, a gigantic lion. He's a very powerful man, and as the poem says, powerful, superb, knowledgeable, and expert, Gilgamesh would not leave the young girls alone. The daughters of warriors, the brides of young men. This is not unusual among holders of executive authority. Uh, it's before they had White House interns or what have you, but <laughs> this is a fundamentally similar uh, process. And the gods often heard their complaints. So let's be a little more uh, blunt about it. Uh, he had the power, because he's this powerful figure, he is the great king, 
to sleep with the young brides on the night of their wedding. Well, because this is an adult audience, we can understand. He didn't really sleep with them, in the sense of saying, oh, I'm sleepy, let's, let's fall asleep now. Uh, he raped these young women. That was his authority. He's the king. He gets to rape these young women. Uh, he gets to have sex with them, which uh, powerful kings like, and also to humiliate all the rest of the society, humiliate these women and humiliate their husbands on the night of the wedding. So this is an exercise of this power and domination he has over other people. And the people complain about it and they pray to the gods. And one of the gods, Ururu, uh, creates an artificial man. It's a very interesting story. She gathers up some clay and some tufts of grass and fashions up this artificial man named Enkidu. For God, like Gilgamesh, an equal match was found. Enkidu blocked his access at the door of the father-in-law's house, and he would not allow Gilgamesh to enter. So they fight. Neither one can overcome the other. They, they leave the city. It's the first story I'm aware of in any tradition of the story of checks and balances. Being subject to the arbitrary, unlimited power of another person is unbearable. And the only thing you can do is to create another power to control it. Right? Merely complaining isn't enough. There has to be some kind of power that can control uh, that offsetting power. The story is a very interesting one. They end up, they become friends, they have many, many adventures, and so on, it goes on. But when Gilgamesh returns to the city of Uruk, he finds that in the absence of the king, the walls have grown taller and the city is more prosperous. And I think there's a subtle story there about the king was not the necessary condition for the prosperity of the city, but it's subtly expressed. The next major story, and I'm going to skip rather lightly over some of the more interesting phases in human history, uh, is from the city of Lagash, which is the Tello in contemporary country of Iraq. And it's the story of a reformer, if you will, who led a great tax revolt, Urukagina, and established the freedom of the cities of Lagash. Freed the markets, eliminated uh, monopolies that had been imposed on the markets, eliminated taxes, and established respect for the property of everyone, whether rich or poor. And from the account of this, which we have from a French archaeologist who discovered these stelae that tell the story, uh, is the first written uh, expression of liberty, omaji, uh, this word here written in cuneiform. Uh, it's a very interesting word. It means, in the context, freedom. And in, in fact, this particular one is drawn from freedom from taxes. Uh, and the, the cuneiform expression of taxation is particularly delicious. It looks like a giant harpoon. Um, I actually went to the Department of Sumerology at the Utvosh uh, Lorand University in Budapest 20-something years ago uh, because I had a tattoo made of that. And I thought, you know, I better check just to be really sure. <laughs> Uh, before I get a tattoo, and uh, the professors of Sumerology said it, it means liberty and a very robust understanding of that meaning, personal freedom, being a free human being. It comes from two roots. It means return to the mother. 
That's an interesting question, and people speculate why that would mean liberty. Uh, the one theory is because it was a matrilineal society, if you had become enslaved to another person through some form of debt slavery or the like, when you were liberated, you returned to your family, which being matrilineal was to return to the mother. But that's rather speculative as to why return to the mother uh, means uh, personal liberty. This is the first we have explicit writing about the idea of liberty. We have another story from the neighborhood, if you will, uh, 1 Samuel 8, very powerful account that becomes extremely influential in subsequent discussions about liberty and the powers of kings. And that is, of course, when the people of Israel demand a king to rule over them because uh, their judge is old and his sons do not walk in his ways. They become corrupted. So we want to have a king. And uh, they're warned. God says, let me explain what this is going to mean. Uh, he will take your sons, appoint them for himself, his chariots and so on. He will take a tenth of your flocks. It's quite an extensive list. And after this description of this 10% tax, it says, and you shall be his slaves. Just imagine 10%. Uh, you will cry out on that day, but the Lord will not hear you because of the king whom you have chosen for yourself. So this is a very powerful warning. And this, by the way, is repeated over and over and over for thousands of years. And indeed, this particular passage is quoted in Thomas Paine's very important book, Common Sense, which was the book that launched the American War for Independence. This is the nature of a king. So very strong warning uh, from that ancient book. Think about a Greek civilization. Another place we often associate with liberty is Athens. Right about 500 BC, they achieve a remarkable high level of wealth and personal freedom. There had been a number of very important constitutional reforms in Athens in particular, which was preeminent among these Greek polities or city-states. The um, reforms of Solon from 594, and then very, very important, the Cleisthenic reforms of 508, which established a constitutional order with very, very significant features for our tradition of liberty. He reorganized the voting system so that people were represented in different ways. This is like an early version of what we have as the House and the Senate, if you will, the same people organized and represented in different ways. So you don't have just an, a mass or a mob, but a multitude of ways in which views can be expressed, debated, and articulated, and people can represent their interests. And also the institution of personal freedom of expression of your views. You could come to the assembly as a free person, I should make a quick note. One does, should not romanticize these cases. This is not a free society as we understand it. It was just much freer than the others at the time. And most people did not have personal freedom. There were lots and lots and lots of slaves and women who did not have the same rights as men. On the other hand, there were independent women. Athens was, was famous for that. The teacher of Socrates, Diotima, was a woman. There were very influential women intellectuals who were able to hold court and be part of the society. So again, not romanticizing it as a society of full legal equality and freedom, but by the standards of the day, uh, quite advanced. You could go into the assembly, argue for something, lose, 
and not be punished for what you had said in the assembly on behalf of your ideas. That is one of the very first, possibly the first recorded case of something that later we ca call freedom of speech, the right to express your views even though it meets with overwhelming disapproval by others. The Athenians had supported the Ionian polities, the Greek cities of, of Ionia, in their revolt against the Persians, and Darius decided to punish them. So the first invasion of Greece uh, by the uh, Persians, and they are defeated and driven back, the famous Battle of Marathon. And then the second invasion, similarly, the Battle of Thermopylae, uh, the Greeks of the Greek mainland are successful in defeating the Persians. Now the significance of this is that it brings about a tremendous discussion in Greece, what is it we were fighting for? The Persians did not offer terribly unreasonable terms. They wanted submission, they wanted to have certain tokens sent to the great emperor of submission. Had you submitted to them, there would have been a Persian garrison set up there, you would have paid some taxes, but it wasn't that bad. But the Greeks said, no, we refuse. We would rather die. And of course, the famous uh, case of the uh, uh, Battle of the Thirty and uh, one of the most famous last stands in history uh, led to a great discussion, what is it that we were fighting for? And this discussion of freedom and law and constitutionalism takes place among many Greek poets and playwrights and philosophers. It leads to an enormous intellectual uh, uh, flourishing to ask, why did we do that? What were we fighting about? Similarly, when Sparta and Athens uh, go to war after that, we have two different systems, if you will, struggling. Uh, the Spartans are beloved of almost all philosophers have preferred the Spartans. If you go down the list of uh, philosophers and say Athenians or Spartans, 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 they, they win generally. They're orderly, disciplined, had strong moral codes and the like. The Athenians, business people, really, business people, merchants, women, yakety, yakety, yak, yak, yak. They let women talk in public. They let foreigners live there. In fact, Aristotle is called the Stagorite because he's not an Athenian. He's from Stagira, Aristotle of Stagira. So there are very important foreigners living in Athens. They call them metics, green card holders, if you will. So they allowed uh, green card holders. Um, they didn't have any obvious national purpose. There was no state educational system, unlike in Sparta. It was all private. What kind of civilization is that? But as Andrew Coulson, one of my um, colleagues here at the Cato Institute, in a wonderful book he did on the history of education, he says, well, let's think about it. Athens does not have a state educational system. It's all in the market. Sophists, wise guys, if you will, going around selling their instruction for money. And Sparta has a centrally planned educational system. So let's just tot it up. From Athens, we get Poetry, drama, arithmetic, music, geometry, astronomy, history, biology, nautical sciences. I'm missing a few, I'm sure. And from, from Sparta, we get 
and he concludes, the names of a lot of American high school football teams. <laughs> That's the primary contribution to human culture is the fighting Spartans of whatever high school. Uh, so this uh, Athenian society, with its relatively high degree of personal liberty, produces a remarkable culture. Sparta, with its socialistic, centrally planned, single-purpose society, leaves virtually nothing of value to posterity. This is articulated rather neatly in the funeral oration of Pericles, as reported by Thucydides in his history of the Peloponnesian War. It's a beautiful speech. It's very substantially a speech about freedom, about the freedom that Athenian citizens enjoy in contrast to their enemies, uh, the Spartans. Each one of our citizens in all the manifold aspects of life is able to show himself the rightful lord and owner of his own person. He says, you know, we're not afraid to debate things in public. We have discussions about things. We think it's better to talk about them first and then resolve to go out and fight if that's what we have to do, rather than just being ordered to fight. But that is the life of a free person. Now, we can then turn to the Roman Republic. And again, I have to apologize. A lot of other interesting things are happening around the world, but we have limited time. And look at the fundamental structures of the Roman Republic. A few important dates uh, that I put up there. But the key element of the Roman Republic is their constitution. The Romans are not particularly famous as poets. There's Virgil, but not that many. Compared to the Greeks, uh, they're not the finest sculptors. They basically copy uh, most of the products of the Greeks. There are a couple of things they're really good at, though. They're good at engineering. Right? Anyone who lives in Europe or has been to Europe, you see Roman ruins all over. They had the best ruins contractors ever. <laughs> Go someplace, put up ruins right away. Uh, and they're still there. And you can find aqueducts still carrying water to towns that were built by the Romans. So some of those things they built to last. They're very good military engineers as well. And they were good lawyers and good constitutionalists. The Roman law is an enduring product. Again, Roman poetry uh, has some highlights, but uh, nothing to rival that of the Greeks. But the Roman law is something remarkable. The Roman constitution is a whole set of offices and offsetting powers that, in effect, make it very difficult for any one person to seize the control of the apparatus of government. Just think about tribunes and censors and consuls and all of these different offices, each one with a set of privileges and powers that can be used to check others in various ways. So the Roman Constitution is a very complex body of offices and powers that almost as if it were designed to make it difficult for someone to seize power. And it lasts a rather long time. Now it does finally get undermined. Uh, this is true of many constitutional systems in history. And sometimes people will dismiss this. Oh, well, those constitutions don't work. They're not important. Uh, it did last longer than the American Republic has lasted. And we don't know how long that will last. It may go on for a long time, and it may not. So we should try to look at these cases and draw what lessons we can as to why the Constitution was um, undone. 
The Republic was destroyed, and here we get to mention Cato, uh, the very indirect uh, name giver to the Cato Institute, Cato the Younger. In 46 uh, BC, after the defeat at the Battle of Thapsus, uh, he knew what would happen. He supported the senatorial forces uh, with, with his um, uh, soldiers to fight against Julius Caesar. Uh, he was defeated, and he was well aware of what Caesar planned to do, namely, pardon him. And by pardoning him, as Caesar had done with others, he removes his authority and power as a symbol of resistance. So, as a consequence, he retired to his chamber, and in Plutarch's Life of Cato the Younger, it's very beautifully written. He goes in, he reads Plato's dialogue on the soul twice, and meditates on it, thinks about it. He then asks for his sword to be brought. So you can feel the drama, the expectation building. And then, they don't want to do it, he demands it, it's brought in, door is closed. He falls on it, knocking over a small mathematical table, indicating he's a philosopher, he was a Stoic philosopher, uh, and expires. In come the doctors to push his intestines back in, and he tears them to be sure he will die, he has to die because he will die the last free man in Rome. And he wanted to make a point, the Republic has been undone. The Republic has been killed. Another one of his allies, <clears throat> who was killed a few years later, was beheaded, was Marcus Tullius Cicero. Cicero had an enormous influence on the, tr the subsequent cultures that emerge in Europe for a variety of reasons. He was one of the greatest orators and one of the greatest lawyers. But also, he wrote beautiful Latin, he wrote down his speeches and his letters in exquisite Latin. And it's a kind of a historical accident that we have these doctrines because people copied them to learn Latin. So this was the best model, was to copy Cicero over and over and master the Latin grammar and vocabulary that way. He was uh, beheaded and then a silver tongue plunged through, a silver pin plunged through his tongue to stop him up so he would never make any terrible speeches as he had against Mark Antony in his Philippics. So Mark Antony's wife went up to the, the head and put a pin through it, rather petty move. Um, but Cicero was quite important because he transmitted classical doctrines of natural law and natural justice to the modern world. We know a great deal of these kinds of ideas of the Roman lawyers because of Cicero, and because of this accident, if you will, that his works were repeatedly copied. Now, it's important to remember that the classical world comes to an end. These civilizations are conquered by outsiders, and they collapse. And there is a period of the retreat of urban civilization, the retreat of literacy, the Dark Ages, as it's known, a very serious discontinuity in European history. But later, civilization and urban life begin to come back. And I'm going to talk about a number of things that are happening at about the same time and influencing each other. I'll make another comment about philosophy of history. Any complex event, certainly the emergence of liberty or constitutionalism, or even the cause of the First World War, is multi-causal. 
if you find someone that says, I'll tell you the cause of X, you should be skeptical. If X is complicated, it probably has a multitude of different contributing causes. So in this case, there are many different events going on. No one is the cause of the other, but they influence each other as they happen. So we'll start with one of the most important events that distinguishes Western Europe from the rest of the Eurasian landmass, and that is what we call the freedom of the church. The <clears throat> Christian church is obviously a deeply important institution uh, throughout all those areas uh, that convert. But at the same time, there are attempts to use the church for political purposes. Something quite significant happens. We'll move back before these dates that I have up here to the year 800. And think about Rome. The Roman Empire is gone in the West. It still persists in the East, so-called Byzantine Empire, but they called it the Roman Empire at the time. The last Roman emperor was expelled from Rome in 476 and uh, booted out by one of his uh, German generals. So there's no longer a Roman emperor in Rome, but it's still Rome, one of the greatest cities in the world. But there's another person who's taken up residence there, the Christian bishop of Rome. And in a way, he begins to fill the space that's been left by the Roman Imperium in terms of authority and also even titles. Think about this person known as the Pope. The Papa means the daddy of the church, if you will. There may someday be a mom, we shall see. Uh, but the Pope has this authority of being the Bishop of Rome, not just the Bishop of Cincinnati or something, but the Bishop of Rome. So among his many titles are Pontiff. That's actually an ancient Roman title, the College of Pontiffs, a very significant function in the Roman constitutional system, responsible for bridges and, and so on. And the Pope is the one who builds the bridge between earth and heaven. So he's the pontiff as well. Uh, many other important titles. I've always been personally fond of universal primate, which I just think sounds really uh, <laughs> distinguished. Uh, but in effect, what happens is the Bishop of Rome begins to fill the space that's why it is the Roman and Catholic. Catholic means universal in Greek. It is the universal and Roman church. In the year 800, the Pope, having been kicked out of Rome by the citizens there, calls on his very loyal follower, a man named Carolus Magnus, which is also a, it's a beautiful name, at least I think so. Carolus Magnus, rolls off the tongue. In Latin, it means Big Charles. <laughs> it's basically what it, so it's like Big Tony or something like that. He's a warlord, effectively. Uh, so he calls on Big Charles, Carolus Magnus, a name, by the way, which, if you say it for a thousand years, nonstop, it will start to sound like Charlemagne, which is where we get Charlemagne from Carolus Magnus. Um, he comes to his assistance, he returns him to his authority, and then some conversation takes place, so we could ask Oliver Stone to write a, make a movie about it, we have no factual basis, but it would be entertaining, in which 
they discuss what to do afterwards, and so one could imagine the Oliver Stone movie in which uh, the Pope says, you know, Chuck, I'm really grateful for what you've done. Is there anything you'd like? And Corollas Magnus says, no, no, come on. So, oh, come on, really, something. Well, I've always wanted to be emperor of the world. <laughs> okay, so he was crowned on Christmas Day, the year 800, uh, emperor of Rome, and then returned to Arles, the capital of his empire, uh, which had the population a little bit larger than the Cato Institute. And that is one of the initial acts of what later becomes the Holy Roman Empire of the German nation. Complicated history after that. But the Germans now have had by the Translatio Imperii, the translation of the imperial power of the Roman people to the German people, they have now the Roman emperor is a German. And they are claiming the power in Germany to invest the bishops with their authority, with their staff and their ring and all the various things that show that they have authority as bishops. In 1073, a German monk named Hildebrand becomes Pope Gregory VII. And he proclaims the freedom of the church, and he says, the Pope, the Bishop of Rome, is the one who gets to make that decision, not the emperor. And they have quite a dispute over this, the investiture crisis. And just a few quick documents to give you a feeling for how this worked. Uh, there's a document called the Dictatus Pape. It's a bit puzzling as to exactly what its status is. It's a list of statements from the Pope. The Roman Church was founded by God alone. The Roman Pontiff alone is rightly to be called universal. He alone can depose or reinstate bishops, etc. He may depose emperors. A little rough. Uh, the Pope may absolve subjects of unjust men from their fealty. You get a feeling for how significant this document is? He's saying that any Christian, I can say, you don't have to obey this king anymore, this emperor. I, I've deposed him. This is a very powerful claim of authority. The emperor, Henry IV of Saxony, does not take this lying down. He sends a letter to the pope. Henry, king, not by usurpation, but by the pious ordination of God, to Hildebrand, you hear the insult? Not to Gregory VII, to Hildebrand. Now not pope, but false monk. And then he rebuts all the arguments, and it's quite um, stern. I am to be judged by God alone, and I'm not to be deposed for any crime unless, may it never happen, I should deviate from the faith. So you might think, whoa, this is a very serious dust-up between two big egos, pope, emperor. Well, who's going to win? Well, the emperor does have uh, mounted knights, armies, castles. He can field a great many soldiers. And the pope, the pope has Belgian monks, nuns, parish priests. Who's going to win? Well, it's an interesting story. Because in 1077, the emperor journeyed to Canossa to ask the forgiveness of the pope and readmission to the church. Now, it's not 
by the way, just because of the force of personality or excommunication, there also was a Norman army happened to be sort of camping nearby. And you may recall that the popes had supported in 1066 the Norman claim to the throne of England. And they were pretty good at keeping accounts, and they said, you owe us, and the Normans indeed obliged. This is a complicated story. But it establishes a very important principle that power is not a plenum. It's not full. It doesn't fill all the space of authority. There's a big crack in it. What later comes to be called the state and the church. And they interpenetrate each other as different sources of authority and law. There's royal law. There's also church law, canon law. And these are bodies of law. Well, that means that little people like us can play one off against the other. If one is oppressing you, you go to the other for protection. If that one oppresses you, you go back to the first. And it creates space, if you will, for freedom and these jurisdictional cracks. As opposed to, again, the statist mentality that power has to be single, indivisible, and absolute. What we see is a political system in which power is fragmented, can be checked, is not absolute, and it interpenetrates each other. Now another element that goes on at about the same time is the growth of independent cities in Europe, the medieval communes. These are very, very significant. When we think commune in American English, you might think of large amounts of marijuana and barefoot people and so on. Uh, that's not what it meant at the time. It meant that these were a common bodies of people who came together to form cities. And here I have a little map of the city of Cologne, medieval map. It was originally a Roman city, Colonia, if you will, now Köln in German. And it had been largely abandoned as the urban civilization disappeared in the north of Europe, for a variety of reasons. And later, it's effectively refounded. There was an archbishop there, a lot of cows, that's about it. And then merchants come to the portus, the gate here, and begin to set out their wares, tables with things to buy and sell, leather goods and pottery, clothing and so on. So more customers come, more customers mean, more attracted to more merchants, more merchants, more variety, more customers. You see the growth of trade again and they begin to build a palisade around themselves to protect themselves, wooden palisade. You can go to Cologne and visit the archaeological dig. It's very, very interesting uh, right there um, uh, in, near the center of town. They later established themselves as a commune, a self-governing body of persons with a social contract. And the slogan of these cities, city air makes you free, after the lapse of a year and a day. Stadtluft macht frei. If you can go to the city for a year and a day, you run away from your feudal master, if you're a serf someplace, you can get into the city, and you are there for one year and one day, going just from Starbucks to Starbucks in the city. You become a free person. The city air makes you a free person. So this is deeply rooted in European culture and civilization, and by the way, it should help us to understand the, the cruelty uh, the, the hatefulness. What was it that the National Socialists put over their slave labor camps? Arbeit macht frei. Work will set you free. And then, of course, they made the enslaved 
a humiliated persons march over the gravestones looted from the Jewish cemeteries as they would go into their deaths. So this was calling on an ancient principle in European civilization to mock and humiliate people who were being marched off to be enslaved and murdered. But the idea that city air makes you free. This is the origin of what we call civil society. And in English, we have this big vocabulary because it's a mixture of words from every other language, mainly Anglo-Saxon and Norman French, but also we pick up words like pajamas and sauna and burrito and the like. Um, we, can have, we can hear the origins of this in the English language. Civil society, coming from civitas, means a city. Right? And civil behavior, which means you are respectful to other people. This is a culture of business people. One of the things you learn in your first job when you work for a private business is do not kill your customers. Right? <laughs> it's a really important lesson. You wouldn't think that from watching American TV shows, where your typical business executive you know, gets up, has a staff meeting, and says, God damn it, we are not killing enough of our customers. I want to see action on this. Too many of the purchase of our product are surviving. Right, that's how the, you think Hollywood portrays business activities. That's what business people do all day long. That's after they've disposed of the body of the murdered transvestite Hispanic prostitute that they picked up the night before, which is, if you look at the data overwhelmingly on television, most murders are committed by business executives. I don't think that corresponds to the actual criminal justice statistics. Uh, but in any case, civil behavior is what you learn in business. You're polite to people. You're respectful. They're customers. You don't drive them away. doesn't mean they're your best friends. You don't kiss them, hug them, and so on. They're not your family members, but you respect them. That is a fundamental principle of business, and it is what civil behavior and civil society are about. But then also from the German word Burg, B-U-R-G, which means a fortified place because they built walls around themselves. The scary bad people are outside, and we people who exist by trading and producing are inside the walls where we are safe. And from that, you get German bürgerlich. You get the French word. There's a problem. French people have a genetic defect and cannot pronounce German words, so they call it bourgeois. <laughs> right? So bourgeois and bourgeoisie, which then comes back into English, uh, comes from that uh, burg, bürgerlich, uh, and also in many uh, American names or British names also. Hillsborough, the boroughs of New York, Pittsburgh, all of those burg sounding, burg or borough come from that. And of course, the first representative assembly in the British North American colonies, the House of Burgesses, has this very, very deep roots. This is the place where citizens come together to debate. What these represent is a movement from status to contract. Sir Henry Sumner Maine, the great historian, said that the movement of the progressive societies is going from status, where your position in society is determined by your birth. You're born a slave, you're born an aristocrat, you're born a master, you're born into this caste. That's what you'll be, that's what your parents were, and their parents, and their parents, and it's what your children will be. That's a society of status. A society of contract, in contrast, is one in which you create the legal relationships with other persons. 
And it's worth uh, emphasizing, I've already went over that, that the um, uh, charters of the cities are social contracts. So you will sometimes run into philosophers who will tell you when they talk about social contract theory, of course, this is merely hypothetical question, allows us to think more systematically about our theories of justice, et cetera, et cetera. But there are no social contracts, and there never have been any. I've heard that so many times. It's wrong. It's historically ignorant. History is full of social contracts in which people agree to live together according to certain principles. And these are fundamental to the establishment of the communes of Europe, these civil society institutions. In many cases, people would gather together on one day, all the citizens would hold hands and recite publicly an oath to live by the law, to harm no one, to follow the common laws of the city, and to come to its defense. That's a social contract taken in public in front of everyone, which is a good way, by the way, to avoid free rider problems. Right? The, the holdout problem, we say, let's all come together. The Truce of God movement, also organized by the church at about the same time, brings about a general diminution in random violence and honor-based violence in Europe by having the parish priests go out, organize the people in the parish, and say, let's come together. Let's all agree not to engage in homicidal mayhem. Okay, sometimes. But not on saints' days, not on Sundays. Can we all agree with that? No stabbings on certain days, okay? And all of you who don't agree, that's, a, that's cool. Would you stand over there? We would like to know who you are. Well, that's a very powerful incentive. Everybody says, okay, if everyone is in on it, maybe I'll curve my homicidal mayhem <laughs> as well. And this does bring about a general diminution in this kind of honor-based mayhem and violence. So there are robust social contracts throughout history. There are also explicit written charters of privileges and immunities that bind the rulers. So Magna Carta, one of the most famous ones from 1215, Article 39, no free man shall be taken, imprisoned, or disseized, which means to have your estate taken from you, outlawed, banished, or in any way destroyed, nor will we proceed against him or prosecute him, except by the lawful judgment of his peers, or by the law of the land. This is the origin of two important elements of the United States Constitution. It can be traced back to this. Right? Trial by jury, number one, and due process of law, fundamental legal principles. And the American colonists and founders repeatedly cited Magna Carta, Magna Carta, Magna Carta. Now, this is not only British, however. Some people think that the English were unique in this regard. This is happening all across Europe. The Golden Bull of Hungary from 1222 had very similar elements, and even a stronger one, the right of resistance, the right to resist the king if the king violates this fundamental rule, the privilege of Košice, which put many restrictions on the king's power in exchange for the succession to the throne. Let me switch over to another thing happening at about the same time. And here we have theology and moral philosophy. And that is the idea of rights, of a rights-governed legal system. Not merely acts in law or powers in law, but the idea of rights. Innocent IV, one of the great lawyer popes in her decision about the Crusades, uh, 
Ask the question whether you can take from non-believers, infidels, their stuff or their political jurisdictions or their lives just because they're non-believers. And he said, no. Dominium, possession. Dominium means mastery of yourself. It comes from domus, Latin for house. And dominus is the master of the house, a very powerful figure in the Roman law, master of the house. One who has dominium is master of his own person. Possession and jurisdiction can belong to infidels licitly, legally, and without sin, for these things are made not only for the faithful, but for every rational creature, as has been said. That principle, we know, was perhaps established philosophically, but not in principle. Terrible crimes take, took place on both sides of the Crusades, enormous amount of wanton violence, and indeed the Crusader armies, one of the greatest cities sacked by the Crusaders was not Antioch or Baghdad, it was Constantinopolis, with the greatest Christian city nearby, and the reason was they were in the mood to sack something, and that was closer, so they sacked that. Um, but this principle is then universalized to all human beings. Two great figures in the classical liberal tradition, Francisco de Vitoria, a Spanish churchman from Salamanca, who wrote a very important book on the rights of the Indians, the indigenous population of the Americas. That the Spaniards had come here, discovered these puzzling creatures. They walk around, they look like us, they open their mouths, and they say, bar, 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 bar. What are they? And of course, one thing that happened was they began to be enslaved and in some cases coercively um, converted. And De Vittoria denounced this as a terrible crime. In as much as he has a person, every Indian has free will and consequently is a master of his actions. He has dominion. By natural law, every man has the right to his own life and to physical and mental integrity. And then another great figure, Bartolome de las Casas, also associated with the school of Salamanca, it's kind of forerunner of libertarian thinking, who devoted his life to defending the Indians against this brutal, horrific enslavement. He uh, had come to the Americas as a young adventurer, was alleged to have seen Christopher Columbus sail off to America when he was a boy. Imagine the excitement to go to this new world. What he saw there shocked him, and he was converted by a traveling priest who explained what was happening here, the brutality, the exploitation, the cruelty visited on these people. And he wrote a book called The Devastation of the Indies. It's a horrific read. He talks about human beings hunted from horseback for sport, speared. That was just a tremendous thing for Spanish lords to go out and spear some of these people and bring them back and then their bodies hacked to pieces and sold as food for dogs in the butcher shops. And he said, this cannot be right. It shocked his conscience. And he dedicated his life to defending the Indians. And in 1550, in a great debate with Juan Guinness de Sepulveda, who argued the contrary position, that God's love manifested itself so strongly, so beautifully, he created an entire continent full of creatures lacking will and desire, waiting for the Spaniards to fulfill them by giving them purpose. Namely, do this, do that, do the other things for me. That their purpose was to be enslaved by the Spaniards. And Delas Casas crushed him in the debate. We have the whole 
Stellas Casas' side of the debate. He wrote it down, it was published. You can get it in an English translation. And he hammers through the arguments, and he effectively wins the debate. It's not a mistake that one of his uh, followers, Francisco Marroquin, who becomes bishop of Chiapas, which is more or less southern Mexico and Guatemala, uh, defended the Indians against this brutal enslavement and exploitation. And unsurprisingly, that region has a much higher indigenous population than other places where they were uh, wiped out. And there is a, a wonderful university in Guatemala. We work with them very closely, Universidad Francisco Marroquin. It's a great, great university, and they have a lot of libertarians in their faculty. Let's move forward again to uh, the constitutional revolts. One of the great heroic phases and truly heroic people are the Dutch. The Dutch and their revolt against their Spanish uh, overlords. Philip II had received the Netherlands from his father, uh, Emperor Charles V, when he came of age. <clears throat> Today, if you do really well in high school or graduate college, you might get a motorcycle or something. Then you got the Netherlands. <laughs> and he was resolved to modernize them because the Dutch were backward. They had these little parliaments, these little talking shots, talk, 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 all the time. They were backward. They kept insisting they had to be asked for their consent before you could tax them. Like, how crazy is that? All kinds of backwardness. And they brought out these old documents and charters all the time. We'll modernize you. We're going to impose a new uh, tenth penny tax, a 10% wealth tax. And the Dutch revolted. And on their battle flag, they put a penny, which is a very robust, obscene gesture to the king, to put a penny on your battle flag and uh, stood up uh, for their rights. And they defeat the Spanish after a very, very long protracted battle, really the greatest empire in Europe at the time. And they create the first modern middle-class society, a society that initiates religious toleration, that people had said it's not possible to have people of different religions living in the same country. You can't do that. No one will know how to pray unless the king tells you. And they experiment, they say, whoa, it turns out people can pray without being told to by the king. And you can have all these different religious groups living side by side. So Benedict Spinoza's beautiful statement of his life in Amsterdam is a gorgeous statement of why he loved Amsterdam. Because everyone was equal before the law, and no one asked what your religion was when they were going to do business with you or he came before the courts. He said that was why Amsterdam was such a great city. And this creates a very powerful model of constitutionally limited government, accountable government, religious toleration, low taxes, relative freedom of trade. Again, I don't want to over-romanticize. It was not perfect, absolutely just free society. But it establishes something remarkable and a middle-class society that invents all kinds of things we take for granted today, like having a home, having furniture of your own that you get to pick out that for your own home, that this was available to ordinary people, not only the great lords living in the castles. A huge innovation. Across the channel, the English are starting to get this absolutist disease. After 1603, when uh, James VI of Scotland becomes James I of England. He says, we're going to modernize you. All kinds of taxes. We're not interested in your consent. I am above the law. And the English say, 
I don't think so. And they struggle against it. One of the great figures here, Sir Edward Cook, uh, that <clears throat> the law is supreme, not merely the will of the king. Subsequent to this, you get in the English Civil War the first real libertarians who are full-throated, honest-to-God libertarians. They come to be known as the levelers. They wanted to level everyone before the law. They're sometimes confused, for a variety of reasons, with communists. There's a rock band called the levelers, and they're communists. And so there's a little bit of a confusion there. The reason is there was another group who were communists who said, no, no, we're the true levelers. And this has led to some uh, intellectual confusion. The ones called the levelers were very, very strong libertarians. They believed in the right to property, the right to freedom of trade, absolute freedom of religion. They believed women had equal rights. There were women levelers. This enraged and inflamed their opponents. And they were so radical, so extreme in their libertarianism. I mean, uh, this cutting edge stuff. They thought even Irish people have rights. Uh, and uh, refused uh, to invade Ireland when uh, Oliver Cromwell ordered the army. These units had many levelers who were active in the army. It was an all-volunteer army replacing previous kinds of armies. He said, invade Ireland, and they said, no, we will not do it. You cannot force us to commit an unjust act. If you go to the village of Burford in England, and the church there, it's a beautiful uh, temple of liberty, uh, and you can see... Uh, the um, uh, work that they carried out, they were executed because they said, you cannot make us commit an injustice. We will not do it. And so they were shot instead. And on the baptismal font, you can see scratched in Anthony Sedley, prisoner, and the date when he was imprisoned in the church. John Lilburn, one of the other great leveler leaders, uh, his wife, uh, Elizabeth, also an active leveler, and his statement here when he died in her arms. I shall leave this testimony behind me that I died for the laws and liberties of this nation. And we owe to him the right to trial by jury and the abolition of secret trials, Court of Star Chamber. He refused to accept the jurisdiction of the Court of Star Chamber over him. He said, absolutely not. These are very tough, very difficult, argumentative people, and we owe them a great deal. John Locke and the radical Whigs carried out much of the leveler program, uh, the focus on property and understood in this wider sense life, liberty, and estate, not just estate. Locke had many leveler writings in his library. He doesn't quote them, uh, not surprisingly, since many of them were executed. Uh, you don't normally go quoting people who were uh, hanged for their views. But he did have many leveler pam uh, pamphlets, and the language is remarkably parallel. But also note, Locke did not acknowledge the authorship of the two treatises in his lifetime. There is a letter, I think, to his nephew recommending them as some of the best books written on political science, but he did, he did not explicitly acknowledge that he was the author. I'll skip ahead to just a few other really important figures. Uh, Turgot who was a great finance minister in France. He was dismissed because of the uh, machinations of Marie Antoinette. He wanted to reform the French kingdom, eliminate many of the crazy taxes, the horrific 
uh, impositions on people, the cruelty of the mercantile system, people broken on the rack for not having sold the approved kinds of goods in the marketplace. He abolished forced labor and substituted taxes for it. By the way, I'm not a big fan of taxes, but I think substituting taxes for compulsory labor was an advance in human liberty. Instead of being whipped and beaten to go out and build roads, they would say, pay tax money and we'll hire people who are not whipped and beaten to build the roads. Win, 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 win uh, all over. Uh, so normally I'm not happy with taxes, but it was a step forward for liberty to substitute taxes for compulsory labor. And he was a good friend to the American colonists when they uh, declared their independence. His famous letter, reduced to the smallest number the kinds of affairs in which the government of each state should take charge. It was very wise uh, advice. How the Americans founded a country that was uh, predicated on equal basic rights. Uh, the Declaration of Independence is one of the most uh, important documents, really, of the last uh, 2,000 years. All men are created equal. They are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these, and I teach courses in this, I emphasize every single word matters. Among these, it does not say these are. It suggests you have more. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. In doing so, uh, they weren't just conjuring up something out of their heads. Famous letter from Thomas Jefferson to Henry Lee about the writing of the Declaration. I'll recognize this is about 50 years later. Uh, but he said it was not to find new principles or new arguments never before thought of, nor merely to say things which had never been said before, but to place before mankind the common sense of the subject in terms so plain and firm as to command their assent and to justify ourselves in the independent stand we are compelled to take. Neither aiming at originality of sentiment nor yet copied from any particular and previous writing, it was intended to be an expression of the American mind and to give to that expression the proper tone and spirit called for by the occasion. So what's remarkable here is he acknowledges they're building on this previous entire history. This was the common sense of the subject. It was then articulated so beautifully and poetically in the Declaration of Independence. And finally, let me conclude with a few comments. Many people confuse the American Revolution with the war for independence. But the people who were involved saw those as two different things. John Adams, in his letter to Thomas Jefferson, what do we mean by the revolution? The war? That was no part of the revolution. It was only an effect and consequence of it. The revolution was in the minds of the people. And this was effected from 1760 to 1775 in the course of 15 years before a drop of blood was shed at Lexington. The records of the 13 legislatures, the pamphlets, newspapers, and all the colonies ought to be consulted during that period to ascertain the steps by which the public opinion was enlightened and informed concerning the authority of parliament over the colonies. So the revolution was the process by which the public opinion was uh, enlightened, not the war, which was merely a consequence of that. Those principles were then articulated even further to strike at the root of the, one of the most horrible institutions on the American continent, which was chattel slavery. Frederick Douglass, one of the great libertarians of history, uh, challenged people. He said, what does the Declaration of Independence mean to me and people like me? It makes a promise. All men are created equal. And yet, this has been withheld from us. It's an extremely powerful presentation. He was a great libertarian. 
There's, by the way, a brand new book that just came out by a participant at Cato University from some years ago who uh, dedicated his doctoral dissertation research to the political thought of Frederick Douglass because he came to a Cato University and he heard lectures on Frederick Douglass. And now we have uh, the best book ever written on Frederick Douglass's political thought just came out last month. So I'm, I'm reading it uh, now. So he was a very important figure. He took these libertarian ideas and wanted equal rights for every human being. Liberals since then, or libertarians, struggled for free trade and international peace. These are just a few of the great heroes who fought valiantly to restrain the ability of states to, com to wage war. They thought that uh, free trade was the key, and they helped to usher in really a new civilization based on trade rather than conquest and plunder. So let me wrap up with something that perhaps is a, a less um, optimistic. And this is, again, this question of does history always go in some direction? It doesn't. The tide turns. Later 19th and early 20th centuries, liberalism is replaced by collectivist ideologies. Nationalism, racism, imperialism, socialism, fascism, communism that push out liberalism. Uh, E.L. Godkin, in an essay published in 1900 in The Nation, at the time a very libertarian publication, said, nationalism in the sense of national greed has supplanted liberalism an old foe under a new name. And then this chilling passage, the old fallacy of divine right has once, more been, has once more asserted its ruinous power. And before it is again repudiated, there must be international struggles on a terrific scale. So he understood. And a few other liberals at the time, mainly old people, knew what the 20th century was going to bring. Murder, bloodshed, on a scale never, ever seen before. So some of these figures who exterminated uh, millions and millions and millions of lives. I think you know all of them. Pol Pot is on there. He did not kill as many people as the others, but it was a higher percentage of the population over which he had control. So the 20th century was steeped in blood. There were people who struggled against it, maintained our ideas. Uh, <clears throat> uh, these young people were beheaded. Uh, I'm sorry. For telling the truth in Germany, uh, the members of the White Rose. Uh, astonishing figures, uh, such courageous people. And uh, uh, Sakharov here and the suffering he underwent to tell the truth about the Soviet Union and the horrific murders that had taken place under these regimes. Fortunately, though, there was a rebirth of liberalism. These are some of the heroic figures who began to recover these principles of liberty. Ludwig von Mises, Isabel Patterson, Roosevelt Lane, Friedrich Hayek, Ayn Rand, Milton Friedman, uh, Luigi Einaudi, president of the Italian Republic after the war, and Ludwig Erhard, a finance minister in Germany, who recovered this libertarian tradition and were able to uh, protect liberty as a consequence. These are truly heroic figures we owe so much. But 
I should point out that eternal vigilance is something we have to always, always remember. And I'll mention, I'll bring up here. You never want a serious crisis to go to waste. And what I mean by that, it's an opportunity to do things that you think you could not do before. So we should remember the current mayor of Chicago, a former uh, leading advisor to President Obama, and before that, member of Congress, uh, warning us very clearly on television that every crisis is an opportunity for them to reassert absolute power over the rest of us. And that is why we have the Cato Institute.